You're listening to episode 85 of Pase Chipotle podcast. I'm your host, Rocio Carvajal, food anthropologist, Mexican culture and gastronomy educator. And through this podcast, I explore the gastronomic traditions and cultural history of Mexico. You can find more information about my podcast, lectures, food tour and publications in the description of the show. Or better yet, you can subscribe to my newsletter for free, which I only send when a new episode is released. Hello there! I have decided to make the most of this tropical summer on a remote sunny island, meaning I am here in England, where it's often hotter than in Puebla, Mexico. I'm just taking some time off before starting the second uh, year of my PhD, so I've been trying to catch up with myself, life, love, uh, podcasts, books, papers. I have been attending talks, workshops, but also I've been busy trying to meet up with, with people I've been wanting to have conversations with. And that brings us to today's episode, which features a conversation I had a couple of days ago in Sheffield. And uh, I went to see Dr. Caroline Dotz-Pennock at the University of Sheffield and talk about her latest book, which is called On Savage Shores, How Indigenous Americans Discovered Europe. And this conversation uh, combines a critical perspective that questions the historiography narratives and consequences of marginalizing the role of indigenous people in the colonial and post-colonial context and how and why is that uh, we don't really talk about this as a normalized thing as scholars in the circles and specialists might know about this and have known about this for a long time. But we can say that the wider public, and certainly in the case of Mexico, we are not um, educated to know um, the level of agency that many indigenous people had in this colonial context and that they used to travel not only as uh, slaves or as um, forced travelers, but also as part of uh, diplomatic missions and other important affairs. So it's groundbreaking in many ways, at least for, for many of us who, who had not been exposed to, to these perspectives. So she takes a, a very critical view and in the conversation we try to bring this up, these challenges and what it means to unearth this history uh, of indigenous people. She talks about indigenous people from all across the Americas, but because uh, of the focus of the podcast and my own interest, I indulge in you just, well, uh, focusing on Mexico and why this information of silenced voices is important and how these stories continue to bleed through the cracks of power structures. And I was just very interested in knowing about the challenges of researching, but also how to write uh, these historical narratives about indigenous travelers, which voice is best to use, how do we try and, and bring their own personal perspectives in a way that is respectful and in a way that is not ventriloquizing what these people may have felt. So it's a, it's a 
big, big task. And no wonder it took her you know, more than 10 years to write this book. That led to questions like, you know, what, what type of historical research we will be looking at in the future, how that will be different from what certainly my generation uh, was taught, what are the challenges that the colonial historical research has to tackle in order to effectively diversify and enrich present uh, and future scholarship. So, let me tell you a little bit about my guest. Um, for most history nerds out there, you might be familiar with her. So Caroline uh, Dodds-Pennock, uh, she is indeed a familiar face and voice that has been featured many, many times in many documentaries and programs. She's participated as well herself on screen, on directly on the microphone, but also advising the production of, of, of shows. Uh, one of those is Netflix's uh, Empire Games, episode six, which is called The Aztecs' Clash of Empires in 2018. The documentary Lost Pyramids of the Aztecs um, that was produced by Channel 4 here in the UK. In 2020, Amazon distributes that as well. Many podcast episodes. One that I can just mention now is one called The Colombian Exchange and the podcast You Are There to Me, but it's available for free on all podcast platforms that was released this year, March 2023. Caroline has a degree in ancient and modern history uh, from Corpus Christi College in Oxford. And she also has a master's in women's studies and a PhD in Aztec history, which of course uh, she will tell you that is indeed in uh, Mexica history. And her academic track record uh, started uh, way back in Cambridge, uh, where she worked as a lecturer and a research fellow. Then she moved to the University of Leicester, where she was a lecturer in early modern history. And now she's a senior lecturer in international history at the University of Sheffield. A couple of train rides uh, from me. So she is in Yorkshire, um, so uh, up north here in England. Uh, she is the author of many, many, many articles and chapters and uh, has published books as well, including Bonds of Blood, Gender, Life Cycle and Sacrifice in Aztec Culture. And of course, her most recent book is On Savage Shores, How Indigenous Americans Discovered Europe, that was released uh, in 2023, which is, well, of course, the one that brought us here today. So without any further delay, remember there's links and, and there's lots of notes and further reading and recommended podcasts and books. So please go to the notes of this episode and I hope you enjoy it. Caroline, we are at your office in lovely Sheffield on a very nice cool day. Thank you very much for having me. Um, but let's jump into it because we've got a lot to cover. So, well, five centuries before me, the people that came from my continent, from America, um, here to Europe, did sound very different conditions and purposes. The stories were immersed in the context of colonial power struggles, dramatic intrigue, um, slavery and co-survival. And even for those of us in the global south that still live today, the consequences of um, colonialism and imperialism might come as a surprise for us, for me, to learn the about the transatlantic voyages that also carried thousands, like tens of thousands, I can't, I can't, of indigenous people into Europe. 
Um, and uh, like you say rather pointedly in your book, uh, theirs is a story of abduction, loss, cultural appropriation, and indeed apocalypse. This, this opening mind sound a bit uh, gloomy and not very enticing, but it is, and it's incredibly relevant to talk about this today. So we know that uh, history uh, is seldom memorialized by the defeated, and this is something uh, that applies to pretty much all cultures and civilizations, which explains why indigenous travelers uh, and their stories have largely been absent from our collective imagination, memory, and, and you know, they're not just part of something we discuss that will, of course, and can help us understand social interactions, not only of the period, but even today. I really don't think there's ever a bad time to start writing and challenging uh, histories and beliefs about this. Um, but, you know, if there are any, uh, what are the benefits, you think, and challenges of writing about it right now uh, in these times of discursive polarisation? <laughs> So uh, first of all, thank you for asking me to talk about this, because I think it is really important to talk about it, not just generally, but right now, because we're in an era when so often histories are being deployed really um, problematically, really strategically in order to support certain specific political points of view. And I think that has always been the case, hasn't it? But at a time when migration has never been more of a sensitive subject in this country, it really is important for me to show how there's a, a deep history to these kinds of cross-cultural connections. Mm -hmm. And it's not that nobody has heard of these travellers before. I mean, you talked about how little their histories have been told, but actually their descendant communities often have stories of these travellers. Mm -hmm. They haven't forgotten about these connections, about this um, imperial wave that swept people across the Atlantic often. Mm -hmm. But in Europe and in um, kind of Western histories, the history of indigenous travellers to Europe, of people coming eastwards at the same time Europeans mm -hmm. are going west, is very much... Uh, something that has been confined to scholarly discussions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I'm not the first academic to ever notice some of these travellers. I mean, some of these are from my um, archival research, but then others have been published about and um, are in, in a scholarly sense ought to be quite well known. They're quite searchable, quite discoverable in journals, in books, in archives. But they haven't made a dent on our popular understanding of the past, on the way that we see this period of history, as you say, in our imagination. When we picture Europe in the 1500s, we've started, I think, as a society to see um, peoples from Africa and Asia and their descendants as more part of that history. People like David Olashoga, mm -hmm. uh, Oliver Totelli and others have done really good work in that field. But indigenous peoples still haven't quite made our way into a picture of that bit of the past. And so for me, that's why I really wanted to write a trade book, why what was originally an academic project became a bigger, um, popular book. Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I try even with academic stuff not to be too dense in the way I write it, but I, re I really wanted it to be something that would speak to these wider mm -hmm. discussions. I mean, you could tell a history of Britain that goes back to the Romans or the Angles or the Saxons or the Vikings. There, there are... Um, uh, how how back, far back do you want to go to talk about a history of migration in Europe? I mean, we're all migrants, in a sense, all across the world, right? But in Britain and in Europe at this moment, mm. these discussions about migration are very sharp, very acute. And it's so important 
to recognise that things that we take for granted, the societies we take for granted are actually based on a much more fluid, much more um, two-way reciprocal exchange than we think about. Mm -hmm. And also to recognise the diversity of roles played by people of colour in Europe Mm -hmm. in this period. Mm -hmm. We're not just talking about people who are enslaved, Mm -hmm. though the enslavement of Indigenous peoples in Europe is a bit of our history that we've often forgotten about. We're also talking about diplomats and translators and family members, ordinary people, traders. It's a really broad and deep history. Just how everyday they were Mm -hmm. is often forgotten. And, And so I really wanted to talk about that. Before we started the conversation, I was saying um, how our identities have changed and how my generation, as a mestiza, and, and the ways we engage with our identity have changed. And I say it's an ongoing uh, process, of course, but even the history I was taught, it was uh, the history that we were defeated. So being raised with the accepted notion that you were born out of, the, out of a defeat and you were the defeated, it's something that it takes a lot to shake up. And of course, I'm sure that the stories of those travellers at the time were told and retold for generations until, at least in in the case of Mexico, I guess many diluted over time uh, to the point that part of my family is from the state of Tlaxcala. And I know nothing about that. (laughs) Like, I know probably my ancestors came here because I'm descended from landed gentry. My grandmother's name was Awatsin, and I know absolutely nothing about how they came to have land, how, how they came to have agreements, how they may have to defend their, their titles, their lands maybe even have come. So for me and for many, it becomes really almost an existential quest to, to find uh, the roots of, of agency in our indigenous side of, of our identity. So have you found that there's more or less resistance to learn a different version of history? I don't know. It's it's a difficult question because it depends who you're talking to, doesn't it? Mm. So I'm not surprised that the book has received polarised responses. The vast majority of people have been really keen, actually, to hear a different version of history, whether they are um, scholars or students or the wider public. I've had so many emails from people saying this is really fascinating. I had no idea. Or from people in the Americas saying this is really um, interesting and important. I'm so glad that we're revealing this part of my indigenous identity. Um, generally speaking, I think that people don't realise there were indigenous travellers to Europe just mm. because they've never been told about them. It's not a deliberate exclusion these people have been at various times deliberately excluded from histories indigenous histories often are suppressed or written out or or misinterpreted Mm -hmm. to various political ends but in terms of the wider sense of these histories today most people have just said this is really fascinating i had no idea in certain quarters of course it's it's problematic because it challenges the idea of a Um, a a kind of monolithic imperial story. Um, It is, I write deliberately in a way that centres Indigenous voices, perspectives, ways of doing where I can, as far as as I can, as a white person writing this history in the Anglophone Global North. Um, and, And we need more Indigenous authors, Indigenous voices, Indigenous scholars telling these stories in public too. 
I'm not claiming to ventriloquize for Indigenous people. I can never do that. But I think that they're by deliberately centering, for example, using correct Indigenous terms for themselves, something which I think within the scholarly world is now generally just seen as something that you should do Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as a respectful Mm -hmm. thing. Certain people have seen this as kind of laughable and ridiculous. Why would you want to do that Um, as part of a a woke, in inverted commas, agenda Mm -hmm. that pushes a kind of anti-nation narrative. But for me, centering Indigenous voices is just doing good history. Showing different perspectives is doing good, rounded, complex, multifaceted, rich, interesting histories. And to centre Indigenous voices when European voices have been centred for so many centuries just feels like the right thing to do. It's Mm -hmm. how you tell a better, more interesting, different history, as well as one that validates those people's claims to their lands, to their nations, to their identities, all of those things are really important and are often overlooked or deliberately erased. So I, my feeling is that the vast majority of people who are interested in history just think this is interesting. But some people feel that this is a criticism of themselves mm-hmm. through a recognition of problematic things done by our nations in the past. And for me, I don't think this is about feeling guilty about things that happened in history, but it is about recognising a responsibility that your nation had for for certain structural inequities that exist in the present. If anything, I would say that even a raw answer like that is a starting point, because at least in Mexico, again, and I go back to mestizo identities, we were made also to feel guilty about being descendants of, like, my second last name is Cortez. Is it, is it a painful process? And it's, it starts with unsettling feelings and feeling mm-hmm. all this jarriness around you. Yeah, and is that shaking you? Well, use that, yeah. not as a starting point. And many Indigenous people, of course, had names of conquistadors because they were mestizo descendants of Indigenous nobility and high-profile conquistadors. Many of the travellers to the Spanish court carried the name Cortes as well as the name Moctezuma, for example, (laughs) bringing together those two heritages. And then that history was deployed really strategically by the Mexican government in the Indigenismo movement in the late 19th and early 20th century in a way that really um, sought to valorise certain parts of the Indigenous past while shuffling contemporary Indigenous peoples off to one side and saying they needed to progress and develop and become part of the modern era. For Indigenous people in Mexico, you'd do sit between two worlds, right, very mm. often. And you mentioned Tlaxcala. Many of the travellers are Tlaxcalans because these are allies of the Spanish. And Tlaxcala has grappled at various times with how to manage the fact that they are not the defeated in that history. Reconcile mm-hmm. your identity if you're seen as not properly Indigenous because you allied with the Spanish or, Mm -hmm. you know, to be Indigenous, you must have been one of the defeated. Really? Why is Mm -hmm. there are so many different hundreds of different Indigenous groups in Mexico alone? And so to homogenize their history doesn't make any sense at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you know about this? You probably know about the Salida um, Festival in Tlaxcala. Mm -hmm. So in 1981, 
the Tlaxcalan council at the time, for reasons that are not unproblematic, but we'll leave aside for the minute, decides to set up a festival celebrating the 1591 departure of 400 families to themselves go and become colonizers in northern Mexico. I think a lot of people don't know about that. They don't know that that is that these people saw themselves as conquistadors, as colonizers. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that they weren't disadvantaged in the colonial system, that they didn't lose anything, that they certainly had to give up a lot of their identity, their religion, their beliefs in order to succeed in that colonial world. But they were doing that in a, a very strategic way that was gaining success for their city. Mm -hmm. And so it almost doesn't make sense, does it, to talk in terms of Indigenous Mexico and, and our identity and a past there because it's so diverse and, and um, multifaceted. People from Tlaxcala, or as you very well say, Tlaxcala, uh, were also trying to shake off an imperial rule, which was very unfair and which was devastating to many because they were subjugated. So also there's two overlapping uh, ethnocentric narratives here, the Mexica, and then the Spanish. Of course, your book covers many indigenous histories and many nations across the American continent. And we're just focusing today on, on Mexico for for the obvious uh, <laughs> reasons that I'm Mexican. And, and I'm interested in this side, obviously. So unsettling discourses about the indigenous world and the colonial experience is, of course, a complex and arduous task at the best of times. And I really appreciate the fact that it will take a collective effort. Like you say time and time again across your book, first, that you are building on a very wide and, and very robust scholarship. And second, that you are just putting something else on the table for others to continue putting things on the table. That is something I think that is absolutely clear and much appreciated, of course. So when I was rereading your book and a few articles to prepare for this interview, Two examples came to my mind when the empire has stopped back. Because we've been talking about like when we need to acknowledge and, and make room for indigenous voices to have their own say and accept what they say. Absolutely. Right? Uh, while that is a process that is ongoing, this has happened in the past. So I remember two very rare and powerful moments that offer a crucial insight into the perspective of the otherness of these indigenous people. So the cases I'm referring to are Felipe Huaman Pomagayala. Uh, which was a Quechua noble man uh, born in Peru in 1616 and was the author of the first new chronicle on good government, which in Spanish is uh, Nueva Crónica y Buen Gobierno, which was a document addressed to northern Felipe II, Philip II of Spain, which presents a critique of the inefficiencies and cruelty of the colonial regime and makes a case for a more just form of colonial government. And the other is um, Otoba Kugano, which is the author of Thoughts and Sentiments on the Evil of Slavery, which is much later, in 1757, uh, who was native from Aju Mako, opposite right, present-day Ghana. And of course, well, these men lived in countries and continents apart from each other. Their work aimed to start a dialogue, to inform to change European perspectives at two very key historical moments, the height of Spanish colonization and the effervescence around the abolition of slavery in the 18th century. So when Woman Poma and Otoba Cugano were able to express their views, you know, they found a way to make their message come across. And you're always very worried uh, about, like you say over and over again, not ventriloquizing and call out 
the scholarship that's always condescending and patronising or worse, just plain anachronistic. I'm sure there were many discussions with your editor, um, but when you were sort of redesigning, you know, going from an academic writing to uh, uh, writing in a sort of more accessible way, uh, how do you re- redesign your approach in creating a narrative that was empathetic, humanising and still acknowledging the limits of scientific writing to talk about the lives of the indigenous experience here in the colonial context in Europe? It's difficult, isn't it? Because I'm very aware of what we don't know, and that comes through in the book. I know it does. So there are an awful lot of points where I have to say, well, this might be what has happened, or we're not sure, or there's a a gap here that we have to try and fill in with informed speculation. And very often what you have in a history like this is not what trade history, popular history is looking for. There isn't a single narrative of a story or a, a biography or a family or a series of events that you can tell in a straight line. And that's really difficult writing for a popular audience. And I was very lucky in my editors in that they also agreed that we needed to centre Indigenous voices and histories and be responsible with how we talked about those histories. And I was very, very careful. You mentioned that I said I I kind of stand on the shoulders of other people. I was also very lucky that my editors did not want me to reduce my endnotes at all. They let me have endnotes and footnotes. (laughs) But so I was able to credit all of these people. And I thought it was really important not to do what popular history sometimes do do, which is to say this was a forgotten history or a lost history, because it's not. Descendant communities and scholars have talked about these histories, they know about these histories. So for me, it was really important to frame it in terms of changing the popular understanding of this period rather than I have discovered it. Mm-hmm. There's I have you come across the the um word in the field, people talk about Columbusing. A white person, <laughs> often a, a white man of a certain age, discovers a field <laughs> where people have been working in it for a number of years already. Um, and I've met Columbusing at conferences at various yes. times where people come and they dis- they say, oh, I found this thing out. And 10 people in the room say, no, we know about that. And that happens a lot in Indigenous histories because people think that they're unknown or lost or hidden where actually there's a lot of work on them and, and they're just unaware of it. And my understanding of this has developed enormously over my career. In fact, the online world has been incredibly important because it's made it so much easier to become exposed to a wider variety of voices. Um, where when I was training in Oxford in the 90s, that's, that wasn't that easy to hear what scholars were saying on the other side of the Atlantic, for example, mm-hmm. or in Indigenous communities. And now I can. That's, I've been really privileged to hear those conversations and, and to learn from Indigenous writers, communities, online and, and in person. As that is as much as to say, I don't think my book conforms really perfectly to what a trade history might be. Some people would do, I know from reviewers, find it a little challenging in places. Mm. It's not a single narrative. It's yeah. lots of smaller fragments that are put together into bigger mm. themes. And sometimes there are bigger stories mm. that you can use to hang them together. Mm. But often those stories are of people who are exceptional in some way or unusual, mm. and that's why they're better recorded. Mm. So you have to be quite careful with how you balance things like, for example, the amazing story of the Tupinamba village. A whole Tupinamba village is set up on the banks of the Seine at Rouen. And it includes 50 Tupi people who are there as part of what is partly a performance of diplomacy, but it's also reflects realities of indigenous politics in 
um, Brazil. And we're not clear how far they are voluntarily participating or are forced to, but simply flipping how we think about it and saying, well, what if this isn't just a spectacle of French power because it's put on in front of all this uh, international politicians? What if this isn't just a spectacle of French power? What if it's also indigenous people displaying their power on an international Mm -hmm. stage? Putting that point of view is important and interesting, but it it is a bit of an exceptional case. Mm -hmm. So you have to weave in these little fragments of stories of people's everyday lives as well. So doing that was a real challenge and it ended up meaning that the book is organised around themes rather than around narratives. And I try and use larger groups, larger stories that are better recorded to structure those, Mm. to give people something to to hang on to Mm. in terms of following it. Um, And my editors were really, really helpful. My editor in the UK, Maddie Price, was amazing about kind of supporting me while we wrote the first draft. I also have an editor in the US, Errol MacDonald, who was very conscious of narrative so he pushed me to make things more chronological within the chapters which doesn't always work of course because things in the Spanish Empire and the British Empire are happening at different times his awareness of narrative drive was really important I've always wanted to write in a way that people will like reading which is not to say that there's anything wrong with writing extremely scholarly work this is not a criticism what I wanted was to say, I found this interesting thing out and we should all think about it and talk about it together and I'd like more people to be able to read it. And the thing that made me most aware of how to write, in fact, was editing a blog. I was a blog editor and when you write for online, everybody knows that if you're on a web page and it doesn't grab your interest in the first two sentences, it's gone. It made me really conscious of the how you write it. Mm-hmm. I think there's a second point here, though, which is about how you represent those voices responsibly Mm -hmm. when you have to speculate one reviewer who wrote me a a kind very kind review from a colleague one comment that she had point put was that she would have preferred there were fewer conditionals places where people said might where I said perhaps or maybe or it's possible that Mm. and interestingly my book was part of the history teacher book club with uh, Malcolm Gaskell's Ruin of All Witches, which um, was nominated for the Wolfson last year and is a a great book. And the way he deals with this issue is by saying that he's going to reduce the number of conditionals that he uses. So he's going to write it explicitly as a narrative, the way he understood it to have happened. But then he has very detailed footnotes, endnotes, explaining, you know, all the evidence and and the uncertainties and all those things. We as historians... You can choose how you do it, but you must make clear, this is my own approach, whether you know something or whether you're speculating about something. I think that's a responsibility we as historians have. But I felt that responsibility more heavily because I cannot ventriloquise for Indigenous people, let alone for the range of different Indigenous communities that I'm talking about. We've been talking about Mexico, which is where my specialism started, but the book covers everything from the Inuit in what is now Canada, Brazil, the Taino people in the Caribbean. I, I can't possibly pretend to speak for all these communities. And I think it's especially important not to. Mm-hmm. So for me, saying, look, I, I, I'm a specialist, but this is my informed speculation. This is a possibility is really important. Perhaps if I was writing about the history of, of white settlers like Malcolm is in his book, I wouldn't have felt like that was so important Mm. because that is not a history that has been appropriated, spoken over, um, altered, deployed in the same way. Yeah, and and I was really fortunate in having editors that shared that sense of responsibility. Mm. 
conditions help a lot. Uh, I cannot speak for the readers from uh, uh, my continent. There's no one way to feel about our own history, right? Oh, and I should say it's going to be published in Spanish. Gracias. Gracias. So um, I'm, I hope in Portuguese, but it will be in French and Spanish and Korean, Ooh. oddly. And hopefully it won't lose that. And I tell you what, because when reading about these stories and and you know, many of the cases that you choose, and we will talk about that later, but many of the cases, of course, they were chosen deliberately to resonate, to humanize all mm. these stories, no? from the collective also to the individual stories, no? from men to female, from a range of perspectives. And, and yes. emotivity is something that is very on the surface across the book mm. and is something that helps me or they help me as a reader to hold on to that because it's a very emotional journey to read it mm. and to share the possibility to acknowledge and feel a range of emotions while reading that and finding different perspectives of how you engage with one single situation in your life we engage with you know breakfast with five emotions, <laughs> so, mm-hmm. let alone a very complex history or, or situations like this. So allowing for the reader to come up with their own way of engaging with that. Mm-hmm. For me, if, if someone thought that was a weakness, for me, that is like the biggest strength of it, really. Well, I guess that speaks to, doesn't it, different people's preferences in yeah. reading, yeah. the different mindset that you might approach it with. Yeah. It is being put out there as a popular history and as I said I thought that was really important that it um, mm-hmm. appealed to a wider range of readers but like you say it, it especially for descendant peoples there's a lot of emotion mm-hmm. tied to these histories and some of these histories are traumatic yep. and tragic and uh, appalling mm-hmm. in places mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so you have to make space for that yeah. don't you? And, and for people's emotional engagement with it and that's humanizing people in history has always been the center of my work. I'm, I'm a cultural historian. I, I like people and the way they are and talking about who they are. The story that resonated with me most was the story of um, the baby Nutak, who is yeah. um, Inuk baby. I had to put down the book more it's, than three times. It's just... it. So for people who, who don't know the story, in 1577... Three Inuit people, Arnak and Nutak, who are mother and child. Their names literally do just mean woman and child or baby. And then an unrelated man called Kalacho mm. are brought by Martin Frobisher to Bristol. And we know a lot about their lives because they're depicted by John White. So we have pictures of them from life. They're really well recorded, their histories. We even have the autopsy records of Kalacho because Arnak and Kalacho die quite quickly in Bristol. Um, after harpooning ducks on the River Avon to show how they harpoon seals. It's it's an amazing vignette, really. And and it makes the whole thing seem a little bit more colourful. And then you hear that how ill he was and how much pain he must have been in and how traumatised he was. It's quite a detailed story, but they, they die and are buried at St Stephen's in Bristol. Uh, someone told me they went to St Stephen's to try and see their resting place, but the church is closed at the moment. But I did hear from the priest when I visited there that they're doing some uh, artistic work around commemorating them, which is great to hear because they're they're in the parish record, but then their resting place isn't memorialised. Mm-hmm. The baby, Nutak, is brought to London, where he's put on show in a pub. But he dies after eight days, probably, of measles, and is buried at St Olaf's in the city of London, which is 
just for me that it it was so striking because he is unrecorded. He's not in the parish register. Someone told me recently on Twitter that they went to see St. Olav's and they spoke to the people there because they have all this historical information in the church. And they said, what about this baby Nutak? And they didn't know anything about it. And I and it's been published about several times. Cole Thrush's Indigenous London book published about it. He published on how he is a great book, by the way, really good book. And it has walking tours of Indigenous, self-guided walking tours of Indigenous London. It's great. But he went uh, with a, an Indigenous activist friend. They went to the church and were denied permission to do rituals for the resting of Nutak in the church. So I may not be in like an official position, but certainly mm-hmm. the verger who were, or whoever was there mm-hmm. said they couldn't do it. I'm not even the first person to talk to them about it, to publish about it, and it's still not in their materials. Mm-hmm. But the person who is incredibly recorded is Samuel Pepys, who is all over the church. His face stares out. We know far more about him than we could ever hope to historically. <laughs> and Nutak is just forgotten in most histories. He's not now forgotten so many people have said to me that it's his story that resonates sticks with you and you can't forget it and partly because this amazing picture of John White where the baby is peeping out around the mother's face in the the hood of the parka it's just incredible so his short life is just tragic he was a person and his bones are in the soil at St Olaf's you have to acknowledge that that is not a neutral history. It's yep. it's, it's an yep. emotional history and, and empathy for that is, is incredibly important. Poignant and difficult and the, important. Yeah, some of these histories are kind of fun and lively and, and powerful and many of them actually are incredibly difficult because the diseases that are killing Indigenous peoples in the Americas are also killing them in Europe. So the lives of many of these people end mm-hmm. in Europe, sometimes after quite a short period of time, because they don't have immunity to diseases yeah. here. Yeah. So that mass um, death that is impacting on Indigenous communities in the Americas is also happening in Europe. Mm-hmm. And I think people often forget that, that, that that's uh, happening on both sides of the Atlantic. Yeah. And that there's not more or less important the life of one baby or the lives of millions who died as a result of this of course right when uh <clears throat> when we talk about the transatlantic slave trade at least in the case of latin america and certainly in mexico uh we mostly tend to focus on just the kidnapping and coerced extraction of african people who were then introduced into the americas uh to perform many forms of extreme physical work at at places such as plantations and mines, specifically silver mines, as we know. Yet our understanding of the extent of slavery is very incomplete. Even the topic of urban slavery in Mexico is very little spoken about and often just plain ignored. While, you know, my native city of Puebla was the epicenter of the transatlantic and transpacific trade, we don't really write or discuss the presence of indigenous people in Europe. And we also don't talk about the presence of African people in Puebla at all. So these ideas are completely alien to most people, myself included, uh, at least some years prior. And I'm really not exaggerating when I say that your work is potentially sparking and since it's going to be published in Spanish as well very soon, will spark a new interest to, to revise and engage with Mexico's historiography, not, not just the, the history, but also the historiography of indigenous experience during the Spanish rule on both sides and being very imaginative here what type of historical research do you hope we will be reading in the next five ten years your alumni in the future and how different will the curriculum will have to be then from the one our generation studied 
I, I'm hesitant to predict in five years because my book took more than 10. <laughs> so historiography doesn't always move quickly. I think we are increasingly recognising the existence of Indigenous enslavement alongside and entangled with African and African-descended people's enslavement in the Americas. Mm -hmm. So Andrews Resendez's book, The Other Slavery, mm -hmm. brought to widespread popular attention, I think, the existence of the Indigenous trade in enslaved people. Very frequently, the transatlantic aspect of that mm -hmm. is less well-known. It's obviously on a much smaller scale than the African slave trade. But in the, the period of the 16th century, it's a pro similar kinds of figures as far as we can tell. The difficulty we have is that the uh, indigenous slave trade is poorly recorded because it is illegal for much of this period. So there are loopholes that mm -hmm. permit enslavement, but actually indigenous enslavement is very frequently illegal, though often practiced. So while we know, for example, that Christopher Columbus legally enslaved 3,000 indigenous people, he was the largest single recorded trader in enslaved Indigenous people in that period. So we know thousands of people being traded. We also know that there were far more whose names are unrecorded because they're kind of in the shadowy aspects of history where they're, they, they use words like loro, meaning brown, rather than calling them Indio or Indigenous mm -hmm. because technically you shouldn't be trading mm -hmm. Indios. And the irony is that the lives of people in Spain, one of the groups of people whose lives are best recorded is enslaved people because we have several hundred freedom suits by people mm -hmm. who've been illegally enslaved. Mm -hmm. So actually we know the lives of people at the top of the spectrum and, and right at the bottom mm -hmm. better than perhaps the people in the middle mm -hmm. because we have these incredible personal testimonies. Like, uh, so in 1536, a man called uh, Martin, who was a boy when he was enslaved from Tenayucan, uh, he was taken by a man called Gonzalo de Salazar, who's quite mm -hmm. famous in Mexican history as a really brutal figure. Uh, and he appealed for freedom from mm -hmm. Gonzalo de Salazar in Spain in 1536. Mm -hmm. And we know an awful lot about his life from his personal testimony given in his freedom suit. He was a translator to Cortes. He lived in lots of cities. And it's only actually when Gonzalo de Salazar, a man who he thought he was going to be a servant for and who promptly branded him on the face as a small child. It's only when he says he wants him to come back and work in his household that he appeals for his freedom. Mm -hmm. He clearly kind of accepted what was happening in being a servant until Salazar himself, this brutal figure, wants him to work for him. And we have all the records of Salazar's actions and his very, very um, vicious attempts to retain mm -hmm. Martin as an enslaved person in his household. Martin actually wins in the end and is freed and permitted to return to Mexico. We actually know these individual cases. Mm -hmm. I've gone off your point, though, which was about the curriculum. But I, I would hope that work on indigenous enslavement as being something that is alongside and very often entwined with um, the enslavement of African and African descended mm -hmm. peoples becomes better known. It is becoming better known in scholarly circles, but I think it hasn't yet got, got the penetration into curricula across the Americas, really. I had a Mexican master's student who came and worked with me a number of years ago. Here in the UK and in, in the US, and so in the Anglophone world, it's basically accepted now that Cortes was not believed to be a god, that the story of the, the histories of the, there being omens and then of Cortes being believed to be a god and of Moctezuma being cowardly and terrified because of that, that all of that is a post-conquest mm -hmm. construction mm -hmm. 
kind of coming together in both between indigenous and Spanish ways of rationalizing that bit of the past. Or at the very least, there's no good early evidence that this was what people thought was happening at the time. My master's student came and worked with me and we read a a really well-known article by Camilla Townsend called Burying the White Gods, Mm -hmm. which makes that argument. And she said, I had no idea. I thought that the story in Miguel Leon Portilla's Mm -hmm. Broken Spears, Mm -hmm. which was put together in the 50s, that is that story, that that was what happened. That's what we're taught. That's the Indigenous history. Uh, deprives indigenous peoples of agency in that moment. We're bound by the omens, you know, it was all inevitable. I would hope that we get increasing penetration of the understanding that there are multiple narratives of that conquest, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as we were talking about earlier, that it's not just this Mexica Tenocha story, Mm -hmm. the story of Tenochtitlan being defeated by the Spanish, but rather a story of many different peoples interacting, some allying, some opposing, wiped out or enslaved or subjected to extreme violence, deploying all of their strategic, diplomatic Mm -hmm. and military power in order to succeed in that period. It's a very multiple story. And I would hope that that multiplicity, which is becoming more obvious, that that would become better known that we stop talking in terms of a monolithic indigenous experience, Mm -hmm. that people recognise also that indigenous communities, although they experienced extraordinary violence, genocide, um, uh, enslavement, they also remain vibrant communities with living histories, that they're they're not gone. It's surprising how often... I've had indigenous friends and colleagues say, well, people said to me, oh, well, I thought you'd all been wiped out. Yeah, indigenous people aren't part of modernity, they're part of the past. And you would really hope we'd we'd move past that now. I mean, the whole not your mascot Mm -hmm. movement. So uh, we know now that the Washington football team no longer use racial slur uh, for their team and their mascot, they got rid of the mascot. In the UK, though, we still have the Exeter Chiefs who did get rid of the... Native American stereotype mascot, but people, and they claim it's to do with local chieftains, but many of the fans still use the kind of warrior chop and wear headdresses and so on. The reason I'm talking about mascots, though, mm-hmm. is that there's a, those sorts of things create the sense that Native peoples are a, a cartoon character, a stereotype, mm-hmm. something of the past, mm-hmm. rather than living diverse communities. Yeah. Yeah. I would hope that would become more widely part of our curricula, as well as more Indigenous scholars being supported to come into the academy, which while I don't think Indigenous peoples need to be part of the academy to tell their histories, some reject it entirely. They see this is an institution that has historically been used to perpetuate violence against us. We don't want part of that. But those scholars that are choosing to be part of it are doing incredible transformative work. Uh, I wrote a review recently of Ned Blackhawk's book, The Rediscovery of America for History Today. It is a fantastic book, tells a history of the United States with Indigenous peoples as protagonists in the way they always should have been. Mm-hmm. And it transforms how we see some parts of that history that we think are really well known. I think it should become a textbook for US history courses. It's brilliant. And I would hope that including more Indigenous voices in archaeology, in ethnology, understanding that Indigenous ways of knowing differ from Western ones and Indigenous scholars are in a position to deploy both academic and Indigenous ways of knowing, which doesn't mean there's only one Indigenous way of knowing. 
But I was telling you earlier, I'm reading this amazing book by Paulette Stevens called The Indigenous Paleolithic of the Western Hemisphere. And she makes a really compelling case for bringing together different ways of knowing in order to transform our understanding of indigenous communities, but also to enable indigenous communities to take ownership of their histories and to tell their own stories in the ways that they choose to and to know more about their pasts if they choose to. Others are saying, no, we, we don't want that as part of our histories and, and that's that's okay. Uh, Jennifer Raff has a great book. Origin is what it's called. Talks about how you do sensitive histories with indigenous communities, indigenous-centred genetic histories, and about accepting the fact that some indigenous communities will want to do that after deep consultation, and others will just say, no, actually, we don't want that. That's not part of how we understand our past, and we're not interested. But the point is um, about, I I think, as well as showing more multiple histories, I think we want to centre indigenous histories more and have more indigenous voices telling their own histories. Indigenous genetics have been tested and it's very frequently used in a problematic way to kind of give people a sense that they are Native American. I get emails from people, oh, now I know where, when I did that genetic test, the 10% of Indigenous history is I'm really Native American. And you're like, no, you're not. You can't. That's about community, language, identity. Can't claim that history. But it is interesting to know Mm -hmm. that presumably that makes up part of our genetic mix, that we are far more mixed than we realise. Which is something that at least for us very evident (laughs) we are the result of that mix and the african component of that mix for a long time was very denied wasn't it in mexico it wasn't considered as something that you talked about only being able to identify as black was something very recent on the mexican census isn't it It yeah yeah it was just in 2020 when it officially was uh, recognized uh being Afromestizo, Afrodescendiente or Afromexicano. So not even those categories of self-identification were officially recognised. Now, going from that to actual (laughs) political agency, to actual representation, to be able to defend the historical rights, land, traditions, that's an entirely different story. Mm. I mean, five plus hundred years later, we're finally recognising these people. But the idea that in 2020, you had to wait till 2020 to be allowed to identify yourself as Mm -hmm. Afro-Mexican is ridiculous, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Uh, Earlier, earlier, previous uh, to the beginning of the conversation, we were talking about your first book. It was focused uh, on gender history, but specifically mm-hmm. within the context of the Mexica society. And your extensive work covers a range of topics, such as women's roles in gender identity, societal dynamics, agency and education, just to name some. Also, you have uh, dwelled into gender global comparative history. So I guess I see the seedlings of this global history, uh, drawing parallels between contemporary societies like the English Tudor period and the Mexica. And in both cases, we're dealing with primary sources that were largely written by men and talking about you know gender history and the case of Mexico also reconstructing our cultural history uh, has the added challenge of the thousands of missing codices that were destroyed or stolen you know as a result most of our understanding of those societies come from colonial sources uh, that were very hastily written uh, in some cases stated by Tlaquilos or scribes and friars and most notable we have of course the case of Fray Bernardino de Sagun who is behind the Florentine Codex or El, El Codice Florentino. And other examples are Codice Mendoza, El Codice de la Cruz Vadiano, in the case of botanical history, and many others that were co written. Um, so, 
which then was a sort of like heuristic approach that you came up with to study and, and challenge at the same time these texts and the way they were written and, you know, who were behind the pens, you know, close the centuries worth of Eurocentric gazes and narratives. And which other challenges have you faced over the years as a result of the perspective that you have been wanted to put forward and, you know, finally sort of crystallising now even more? I feel like calling it a heuristic gives too much credit to my approach it's a little bit like when my first editor said, um, I want you to talk more about your theoretical basis and your theoretical approach and less about the sources. And I just said, no, but the sources are my theoretical approach. That's where I start. <laughs> and so I guess in a sense, I'm a very old fashioned historian in that I start with the sources and see what I can find and what they can tell me. And I'm very aware, though, as you've said, of the limitations of those sources of the fact that they are largely produced by elite men, mm. that they very frequently are about rather than by Indigenous peoples. Mm. Now, that said, there are lots of sources for Indigenous history produced by Indigenous peoples. What I didn't have for this book were very many sources by Indigenous peoples who were travellers. Mm -hmm. So someone wrote a review of the book in which they said that I ignored lots of sources for Indigenous history. And I'd, I really would love them to tell me what it is that I should have been using because I'm completely aware that there are many letters from Indigenous communities, usually from elites and elite men, letters, histories, town chronicles, um, things produced under colonialism. But there aren't very many things which are by Indigenous travellers and written by Indigenous peoples. Uh, or, or written by Indigenous peoples about those travels. Now, it may very well be that if I were to spend a lifetime in the Mexican archives, I would find some more. I'm sure I would. At some point, you have to write the book. <laughs> and it's already taken more than a decade <laughs> to finish. So at some point, you have to stop, especially with... I'm not trying to be completist. I do keep seeing other references and being like, oh, I, wanted, I should have seen that and put that in the book. But you can't do everything. You cannot cover everything. And what I'm trying to do is to tell a bigger story. So I'm sure, as I say, that if I, I spent decades in the archives, I would find a few more references. Although it is quite difficult sometimes to trace people in the archives because nearly all of them are called Martin or Pedro. Juan. Juan, yes, thank you. <laughs> There's like three or four names that just come, Philippe. They come up over and over and Felipe rather. They come up over and over and over again. And so you can't be certain whether you're looking at uh, Juan Cortes or Juan Cortes's son or a completely unrelated Juan Cortes. You just can't, can't be certain. It is really hard to track the traces of those people unless they are extremely high status elite men. And even then it's quite hard. But I think there is an awful lot of work still to be done on specialist studies of specific communities, specific groups of travellers where people will find lots more mm -hmm. than I did. So I guess my approach was always simply to be very aware of what I had and what I didn't have. I've talked, I've already said this, that, you know, where the gaps were, mm -hmm. what can we do to fill those gaps? In some cases, that involves informed speculation. In some cases, it might involve using the voice of a later Indigenous traveller who may have had a similar experience. So, for example, the vast inequities of European society mm -hmm. are something that is 
mentioned Mm -hmm. by Mm -hmm. multiple Indigenous travellers. Now, that's not to say that Indigenous societies were a utopia of egalitarianism. They would most definitely were not. But what very few Indigenous societies seem to have had was extreme poverty. Mm-hmm. Most of these communities, even the Aztecs, which is a hugely stratified, Aztec Mexica people have very, very high status people, very low status people, but they don't tend to have, unless during a famine, for example, people who are living in abject poverty because they have mechanisms of redistribution mm. that mean that everybody's taken care of. You repeatedly see this issue of inequality come up in Indigenous sources. And so there are some later Indigenous travellers who comment on that inequity that you're then able to use their voices and say, look, we can't be certain that it would be the same, but we have these people who talked about it. Mm. I mean, we also have some recorded oral traditions, mm. like the Cantares Mexicanos, where, for example, there's an incredible recitation that talks about the people crossing the Atlantic and their experience of the water in a metaphorical, flowery, kind of um, evocative way. And we can't be certain which travellers specifically that applies to, but what we do know is that their travels are making their way into the Indigenous imagination. Mm-hmm. We can be sensitive to where you can foreground an Indigenous person. So you mentioned the Codex Cruz Vaviano, mm-hmm. a copy of which is in the Royal Library at Windsor. We don't know how it got there. And we've started recently calling it the Cruz Vaviano Codex because that acknowledges the names of its Indigenous producers. Exactly, rather than the Spanish name that it previously had. So mm-hmm. changing the names of codices. I've, throughout the book, used the the new Indigenous names that have been suggested for these codices rather than the names that credited them to their discoverers or to their first interpreters. Now, that makes it a little bit more difficult sometimes because they're not as familiar, these names. But I think simply wherever possible, pointing back to the Indigenous origin, to the influence of Indigenous people, to their involvement, being simply being sensitive to where it's possible to flip the script and I don't think what I'm presenting is a heuristic, unfortunately. I think it's it's just, I wouldn't say I'm like a model. <laughs> Simply trying to have the presence of Indigenous people and their perspectives in the foreground whenever I approach things mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as far as is possible and acknowledging when you can't. I didn't know you you, you were not calling until very recently. De la Cruz Vadiano. De la Cruz Vadiano. Yeah, they used to call it the Codex Barberini. Because Cardinal Francesco Barberini owned it and then they shifted it to be uh, named after Juan Badiano was the author and yeah. De La Cruz was the translator from now Yes, they were at the Colegio. And there are loads of them that have names like that. Florentine Codex, because that it was held in Florence, or Codex Vaticanus, because it's held in Vatican, as opposed to giving them names that are meaningful for their content and their authors. One of the things I enjoyed the most about your book, and there were many, uh, but one of the things I enjoyed is that how you address uh, three key aspects, which we sort of touched briefly before, of any good scholarship that is challenging the things we know, but are not accurate or incomplete, you know, about dominant narratives, namely about colonialism and imperialism. And the case of using indigenous travelers as a case study, because, you know, it could be any other entry point, right? Um, and then you address the information that we assume it might exist out there, but we don't yet know. So we, we know there is, but we don't know where or what it says. And last, you warn us that there's a whole lot more that we simply don't know 
but we don't know, right? Uh, and and you know that sort of should be the the, the call to action to keep on, on looking for these uh, documents. So, to which of these three aspects of the things we know, the the known knowns and the non unknowns, <laughs> which of the aspects you were you felt more drawn to when you started this book? a decade plus ago. Uh, and, and where are you now, these three aspects? And, and which of these you think is still the most challenging in academic writing? I'm not sure you can entirely disentangle them, can you? Mm. But I mean, where mm. I started was as a specialist. Uh, I was, it was originally going to be an academic project on Central American indigenous people travelling to Spain. Mm-hmm. So when I started, it was about what we could and did know. Right. Because uh, and what we could try and find out. Mm -hmm. That was where I started. Mm -hmm. I trained in the UK, in Oxford, in a place where they post-colonial history had happened, where people talked about the fact that it was important to centre indigenous perspectives. But they never talked about actually talking to living indigenous peoples. Uh, I've written about this a little bit. I co-authored a piece with my friend Leila Blackbird, who is a wonderful native scholar working on indigenous enslavement. She and I co-authored a piece for the What is History Now volume about how including indigenous peoples changes history. I reflected in that on the fact that my understanding had changed. You know, I started as quite unsurprisingly, I suppose, being trained in Oxford in the Anglophone Global North. You know, I was quite an empiricist. and, And we don't, at that time, of course, conversations in the U.S., had moved on, were starting to move on, although many Indigenous colleagues would say they still haven't moved on sufficiently. Uh, decades later, this was, I finished my, graduated my PhD in 2004, left Oxford in 2003. So two decades later, mm-hmm. they still haven't moved on enough. But at that time, conversations were changing in the US. I was quite separated from that here in the UK. And so I've learned an enormous amount, as, I, as I've said, over the, the last two decades and in terms of my approach and how I write. And I think I've become more aware that there are things beyond what we know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and we may never know them. And I was always sympathetic to this. In my first book, I quote Susan Gillespie in saying, this isn't the exact quotation, but essentially says there are truths to be found in the, she's talking about the, the codices mm-hmm. that are beyond facts and what she's talking about and what I was meaning at that time is that they tell us more about those how those indigenous peoples thought and felt and saw their histories mm-hmm. than they maybe do about what exactly happened so the, and so the process of memorialization yes exactly the process of memorialization what was important to indigenous mm-hmm. people at that time what their priorities were mm-hmm. because we have an additional problem with mashika histories that in the 1430s the tlatoani the ruler destroyed all the sources and rewrote the history so even if we can rely on the post conquest sources to tell the pre conquest histories those histories were rewritten less than 100 years before the conquest again <laughs> so you have to just accept that you can't necessarily disentangle facts. There's a sense in which my understanding has simply evolved from recognising there are things beyond truths in them to recognising that there are forms of knowledge Mm -hmm. beyond our empiricist way of approaching things that are meaningful and important and that should be centred in telling these stories. And sometimes that's about accepting not just that there are things we can't know, but that there are things that Indigenous peoples and Indigenous communities might know that they don't want me to know. Those histories aren't necessarily for me or for wider society. 
I as I, I've been very clear that I think wider society needs to know more about indigenous histories, but some mm. parts of that history are not for us. Yeah. They are for those communities mm. and they are privileged knowledge and we should just accept it. So I suppose I've turned your question a little mm-hmm, bit, mm-hmm. which is that I think it's about knowing what we can't know, trying to find things to fill those gaps, but also accepting that some gaps exist and will always exist, but they may exist because that knowledge isn't for me. That That is, that is absolutely true. I mean, just as much um, we are in need to, to listen their voices and, and they always should keep the right to tell how, when and if they want. And sometimes Indigenous communities do decide to share that knowledge. So Ashley Kistler did a wonderful piece of community-based ethnography in San Juan Chamelco. Mm-hmm. And um, that's in uh, Guatemala, what's called, what is now Guatemala. And uh, San Juan Chamelco is um, a place where a really famous ruler called um, Don Juan Apo Bats, who is uh, a Maya, a Quechi Maya, um, he travelled to the court of Prince Philip, who would become Philip II in 1545. And it's an incredible story. I, I tell a lot of it in the book, but I, even my editors made me take out some of it because there was too much of it. But Ashley, Ashley Kistler's work has, has all of it. He travels to the court and he's a hero in that region because he, volunt- he becomes the first voluntary Catholic from his region. And he does that because he sees the destruction of communities around and he chooses to convert to Catholicism in order to protect his community. So Ashley Kistler interviewed lots of local people. She gathered their oral histories about how, and there there are all these stories about his journey, about how he flew or went in caves. But we also have alphabetic records showing about the ships and the, the voyage that he made. And when he gets to Spain, he refuses to bow to Philip because he says, no, I am a king. So although he's very careful and strategic in his diplomatic exchange, he he refuses to bow to him. It is in the book. The point of this is that Ashley did this incredible piece of research with the community, alongside the community, and they shared an awful lot of information that they decided then they uh, have an annual day celebrating them. They made a children's book to be used in schools in the region. Um, There's a statue. They corrected some errors that were believed in in public histories about him. And also they shared, uh, after a period of time, they decided to share uh, an alphabetic record, which has been copied and copied and copied. So the original is almost illegible, but people are entrusted with the task of recopying and remembering the words. And and they decided to share this knowledge, and that's now part of those published histories. But that is something that was done after long-standing, careful, collaborative, community-centred work. And I have no doubt that Indigenous communities across the Americas have sources, records, oral traditions that they have chosen to share within their communities. Mm-hmm. And it may be that one day they will decide to share that externally, but they don't have to. But but that was just a wonderful example of how that community-centred research can develop our understanding, but also really um, be beneficial for a community mm-hmm. in terms of recovering and sharing and using their history as part of their community building and, and of their community identity sort of on the other side of contemporary societies of indigenous communities and their challenges and, and how they're organizing. And so one of my case studies, my PhD, is a community in the northern sierra of my state in Puebla, in Quetzalan, and they are coffee growers, 
well, one of the things they call is coffee. And they are descendants of uh, Nahuas, but also other um, cultures. They have been going on for 40 years as an organization. They're called Tosepantitataniske. And they have created to celebrate the, the 40th anniversary of the resistance because they defend the land, they defend, you know, the culture, the uh, traditional forms of social organization, etc. They decided to create a plan for the next 40 years. And in order to do that, they wrote a codice. Oh, wow. So that codice, which is planning you know, the next 40 years, is written uh, by them, but also with collaboration of some of their allies. Mm. Some are scholars and, and some are activists and you know, do various activities. And they decided to publish it in Espanol and Nahuatl. Oh, that's fantastic. And all of the meetings they have, and depending on the... Depending on the purpose of the meeting, whatever, they will always have uh, everything said in Nahua and also uh, in Spanish. So that the the use of that agency to build, uh, to strengthen the identity, the, the bonds, everything, you know, inside, it also serves a purpose to to educate outside. And I'm not a Nahuatlata, so... I have no idea if everything that says in the Nahua version is everything that's in the mm. Spanish version and good for them if they decide to, to have it slightly different. Mm. But that just, sorry, just to say that that resource is very much something that is done today mm. uh, and the deliberate use of, of their language to say what and when and how they do. Language revitalization is really important. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There are many ongoing conversations about how questioning colonial narratives contributes to addressing present-day issues such as the oppression of indigenous people, ongoing. But these complex processes sometimes... It's okay. okay uh, sometimes have um, unforeseen consequences. Uh, for example, an attempt to stop using colonial terms. You know, you, you talk about this law challenging this, um, you know, like the... Terms like Iberian America, so uh, Latin America, Hispanic mm. America. So uh, in Espanol would be something like Ibero America, Latino America, Hispano America, and many groups have advocated for the for the use uh, of Abiyala, which, well, for those who don't know, is a concept that in Kuna uh, language means uh, lands that flourishes. Now, here's my other problem with this: that what Abiyala might be culturally appropriate for present-day inhabitants of what is today Panama and parts of Colombia. Its widespread use can also be seen as an affront by other indigenous groups because mm -hmm. we are forcing them again one well, like language. Turtle Island is very popular, in, especially in the Western United States, but is very North American centric because that's Absolutely. their belief structure. Absolutely. So I bring this up because in your book you insist on addressing not only the Mexica but many other cultures, and you, you made a point of that. But in first the Aztec, the correct name is Mexica, and you've opted out for tortillas option of all people, right? To to pair them and say Azteca Mexica because they're one and the same. Whether you know one or the other, now you know both. Sort of to educate people, you know mm. that is. But talking about these hidden identities that were sort of encompassed by one these. The former culture of Mexico is the Aztec, full stop. But you talk about a lot about the Tlaxcalteca people, which again makes me very excited because I have a Tlaxcalteca heritage and how crucial they uh, were uh, because of their participation in the Spanish mm -hmm. world to do what they did. So can you offer some insight into the process of 
discovery, if it was for you or not, uh, of these complex indigenous geopolitical relationships of the pre-existing tensions of all these groups, but also the crucial role of the Tlaxcalteca. Has your perspective changed in terms of their sort of protagonism in this history? So I remember learning about it as an undergraduate student that Cortez, I was taught by Sir John Eliot, um, who um, died not so very long ago in his last year before he retired from teaching in 1996. And I have reservations about some of his work on Indigenous peoples and the dichotomy he produces between Indigenous and Spanish ways of thinking. But I do remember him teaching about the multiplicity of Indigenous groups and their differing attitudes and the role of the clash columns. Mm. I think that what is new is a much greater recognition that we shouldn't put these people under the heading of, well, Indigenous mm. re- reaction. So all oh, the clash columns, the Mexica and the um, Cholulans, there's a much greater recognition that they are different protagonists mm. in their own right, that these are different peoples with different histories, different languages, different approaches. And while they may have shared some cultural cultural ways of knowing or some aspects of the ritual, the calendar of the religion, belief. There, there were definitely similarities and commonalities that the Mexica narrative, which are, and I choose to call them the Aztec Mexica because I think it's the only case where I use the Western word rather than the indigenous word in the book, is that everybody knows that they're the Aztecs. So if I call them the Mexica, people won't realise that I'm talking, that it's the group they know as the Aztecs. So I think you have to stick them together in order to transform people's views of them. The narrative that has been told has been very dominantly that of the Aztec Mexica, the people of Tenochtitlan, the capital city. And I think it's now much more recognised that Tenocha-centric narrative is problematic and we need to fragment that into different groups and see different places as centres. One interesting little sidebar about the use of Azteca Mexica a former student of mine called Maria Fernanda Valencia Suarez, who wrote a really interesting book about how Azteca people are perceived in Britain in the early modern period and how their histories are used by English kings and things. It's very cool. That book is in Spanish. She wrote to Miguel Leon Portilla and said, what am I supposed to do? Nobody in England knows who the Mexica are. He said, Let's put them together, Azteca Mexica. So if he says it was okay, not that he should be the model for everything, but um, say to use both. So I, I was inspired by that. But I think it, it's the only way to change people's views of the Aztecs is to say Aztec Mexica, because then you normalise mm-hmm. the use of the correct term um, about the Tlaxcalteca. Yeah, I, I don't think my view has changed that much. It's more that it has become more mainstream to recognise these different mm-hmm. communities mm-hmm. Um, But people like Mike Smith, the archaeologist, have been doing this kind of work for decades, saying, why on earth is everything always about about Tenochtitlan? You know, he has a book called Aztec Cities, which goes through the archaeology that we know for different places, because so much of it has not been widely published unless it's about Tenochtitlan. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he actually doesn't talk about Tenochtitlan very much in that book. He talks about all the other cities (laughs) and city-states, all the Alta Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's almost that that recognition of the all the different lenses is is i think more is what has come to the fore that that seeing more more centers mm-hmm. rather than seeing it as different sides of an indigenous point of view it's now separating them much more clearly into different groups 
Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah, Different yeah, states. Yeah. I mean, I used the word earlier. Um, David Carrasco uses the word micropatriotism, which yeah. is, I think, a great yeah. way of thinking yeah. of it. It's not quite as big as a, st- a nation, but it's yeah. it, it, like, certainly an independent identity. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have it here, of course, as well. Oh, I live in the nation of Yorkshire. Yorkshire. <laughs> Uh, I mean, well, yes, of course, in in a scholarly context, this might be something that has been discussed and understood for a long time. In Mexico, you know, I don't think it has permeated yet. That's why I bring it up, right? Mm. One of the references that is in Spanish and that is going to be on the um, notes and references in the show is uh, Los Anales de Puebla, Mm. Which is very, very interesting because most poblanos don't even know about this. Which are documents that are in our historical archive that talk about the indigenous side of, of the original settlement of the city where people from Tlaxcala inhabited, which were all these amazing people that were they were not enslaved because they were partners, effectively. So they were stonemasons, carpenters... Um, dancers, you name it. So they were recognized as an independent nation, Republica de Indios. Even now in Puebla today, to recognize the agents of Tlaxcantecas is like, mm. what? <laughs> so that's why I bring it up. Because, of course, in Mexico, you know, if you go to any decent library of El Colegio de Mexico, El Instituto Mora, you will find all these things. Mm. But they do not permeate the national curriculum, which is what what's stopping things from changing, you might argue. And the, and the failure to teach indigenous histories has been a problem across the Americas. The stereotyping of indigenous pasts, mm-hmm, as mm. opposed to recognizing what's happening locally or mm. the distinctiveness of indigenous communities. The, the, we talk to people, even in the US, about indigenous peoples, and a lot of them will think that they're all nomadic kind of um, horse peoples, where that's actually just some communities. Mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. idea that they're wild and didn't cultivate agriculture, which of course isn't true at all. The predominance of the Clovis theory when there are many archaeological sites from before that period, the idea that recent arrivals, there's so much misinformation that is taught as fact, mm-hmm. and sometimes very well-meaningly, mm-hmm. and sometimes less well-meaningly. I mean, the case of the Texas school curriculum is a fairly um, prominent example of textbooks being deliberately and problematically uh, altered. Of course, in your book, you talk about also the political landscape in Europe at the time. So just like the same way European monarchies had a complex geopolitical relation, so did indigenous dynasties who also created alliances, unions and treatises to expand their territories, fight common enemies and create powerful kingdoms. And this is not just exclusive, of course, of Mesoamerica. Um, But (laughs) knowing and understanding that the Mexica had many enemies (laughs) and that they were uh, one of the many cultures that arguably were much older and much more complex than them because they just benefited from the knowledge that was around them. It is in that context that we can better see a fuller picture through your work as you show the power and influence of certain indigenous elites that transcend continental barriers. So we see all this these visitors that are ambassadors with all the entourage. So can you expand a bit about the nature and purpose of these indigenous noblemen and women at European royal courts? I think this is one of the things, one of many things that is often forgotten, is the ubiquity of indigenous ambassadors at European royal courts, especially at the Spanish court in the period of my book, which is the 1500s largely. So I'm focusing on that earlier period. And I mean, when Cortes comes back from Spain, comes back to Spain Mm -hmm. from Mexico for the first time after the fall of Tenochtitlan, he brings with him at least 15 important noblemen. Mm -hmm. 
Um, there are about 30 who men of status who are named in the sources, but at least 15 of them are elite figures representing five or more different indigenous communities, all there to plead for rights for their families or for their communities. Uh, the Clash Carlins are very prominent among those, even though Don Lorenzo, their senior ambassador, dies during that expedition, they gain privileges, including the right to be free from local tribute, to become a direct uh, a state that was to ro- ruled directly by the Spanish crown rather than locally, so freed from local interference in Mexico. Uh, they get a coat of arms and the title the, the, of the loyal city mm-hmm. of Tlaxcala. So they are ensuring for themselves ongoing privileges. And we know that they have to keep coming and reinforcing those because they get eroded at local level. So we see multiple embassies. The famous Lienzo de Tlaxcala, mm-hmm. this great image of their role in the conquest is uh, believed created to be taken by one of those embassies that we have mm. no evidence that it came to court. But we know from the Clash Carlin Council minutes that they create a big lienzo mm. that's going to be taken to court. So we assume that's what it was. Now, they are therefore there uh, trying to promote their state interests. Mm-hmm. You also have people who are there appealing on an individual behalf because uh, in the colonial context indigenous peoples are supposed to appeal to the local courts they're supposed to appeal in lima or in mexico city but actually the highest court of appeal is the crown the way that the spanish legal system works the crown is the highest court of appeal so even though they keep trying to ban indigenous people crossing the atlantic Mm -hmm. once they get to spain they become under the protection of the crown and they have this fascinating duality where indigenous nobility are both considered pobres, people who are poor and lacking in uh, the ability to care for themselves. So they're treated like children and therefore the crown has to provide care and uh, legal representation for free for them. And they also have to be treated according to their calidad, their status. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you have this case where descendants of indigenous nobles who are worth huge sums of money are being paid for by the crown at court. It gets to be very, very expensive after a while. There's a wonderful book called Andean Cosmopolitans Mm -hmm. uh, by Jose Carlos de la Puente Luna, who looks at all these diplomats at the from specifically from uh, Peru to the Spanish court um, from the Andes? Now, some of those people are there because their individual rights are being eroded. So they're there saying, for example, um, th- these uh, people have taken my um, lands, or they I want the, my rights to uh, to be ruler of this group of territories or to take this set of tribute or I want compensation because the Spanish have uh, appropriated my traditional rights. There's a lot of talk about indigenous rights, but when what they talk about indigenous rights more often than not, what they mean is we as the elite want our traditional rights to make the ordinary people do what we're telling them <laughs> reinforced. It's not mm-hmm. a very solidarity kind of picture. It's mm-hmm. very class based. That said, you do have people like Don Diego Torres y Moyashoka. He is from Muisca and Conquistador descent. So uh, his mother is Muisca and he has, so he's Mestizo and he holds the traditional rights to the, to be ruler of the indigenous community. But his brother, who is Spanish, is, is of Spanish descent, is the local encomendero. And so you see the traditional indigenous 
um, rights come into conflict with the Spanish structure. And so when he first goes to Spain, it's because he wants to protest that his brother is taking his traditional rights to demand uh, labour from his community, to demand tribute from that community. He gets shipwrecked in the Caribbean, though, and he sees the devastation that's happened in the Caribbean. And by the time he finally manages to get to court about three years later, he has become a campaigner for Indigenous rights. And he writes a great treatise demanding, this is in Nueva Granada, demanding that uh, there be changes in um, about 20, it's about 20 different areas to support the indigenous peoples of that nation. So he is one of several recorded, but probably many in reality, indigenous people who go com- campaigning on a wider scale. But he starts off as a really typical sort of um, self-interested noble. Most of the, there are there are quite a few actually who are also there asking for um, support for uh, the evangelical effort who want money for churches or more um, Franciscans or Dominicans to come and support the evangelical effort because, of course, for the elite, being Christian is tied up with power very frequently. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, you, there's a lot of different reasons they're there, but frequently it starts out at least with self-interest. Mm-hmm. Francisca Pizarro Yupanqui, who is the last descendant of the Inca ruler through the Nusta, the princess, uh, she is exiled to Spain. Francisca is exiled to Spain because they want her out of the way, so she's not getting involved with power struggles in Peru. And then she appeals at court for her rights as a descendant of nobility. She wants compensation. There's a lot of claiming of compensation too. And she does manage to secure um, her family rights um, to, to a limited degree to secure a pension. People often want pensions from the crown, um, which in this period means annual money, not just when you retire, uh, pensions from the crown and um, lands, things like that. Does it really change from, uh, or it's not that different from, from the way nobility operates here as well, no? No, absolutely. Lords, lords trying to just save their own scheme and some, <laughs> some sure have bigger their lands. Other have, others have very selfish ones. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, just closing down, I have these final thoughts. And there are many things that I couldn't fit in. So I will put on the notes one great episode of In Our Time where you talked about the debates of Valladolid. We put the reference there so people can listen to that. Was it last week, two weeks ago, during the, the workshop you co-organized uh, on displaced indigeneity, unsettling uh, histories, forced migration, kinship and belonging? The last day, uh, Nancy Van Dusen said a very poignant warning, not only... Um, I think that applies to, to history, but of course, all social sciences, which is, and I wrote it down because I thought that was brilliant, to deconstruct, and I will add, to challenge our desire to give voice and agency through our narratives, meaning uh, setting critical ethical boundaries to build our epistemological approach. So which were the main challenges and decisions that you made regarding the narrative and tone? We, we sort of talked about this, but... Your students will read your book, of course. Oh, I hope so. So so what should the takeaway be for scholars about the way you have deconstructed your own desire to voice and give agency? It's really difficult, isn't it? Because I've mentioned that in the time that I have been doing Indigenous histories, my own 
awareness of the ethical challenges has developed enormously. And I suppose that's that's life, isn't it? I wish I had known some of the things I know 20 years ago, but you start down a path and then, then you, your knowledge grows and your awareness and, and your ethical understanding. And so for me, as well as the things that we've talked about, about not ventriloquizing for Indigenous communities, being sure to use respectful terminology to use the words that they use about themselves to be clear about the fact that they are living ongoing peoples with voices of their own I have tried as best I can and in a limited way I recognize to direct attention to indigenous scholars to recommend indigenous books to point people towards indigenous peoples and communities that are doing this work for themselves. And I don't take lightly being the person as a white woman, as I've said from the Anglophone Global North, being the person who is representing these histories in the public sphere, in Britain especially at this moment. Mm. So, and this is one of the things we talked about at that workshop is how one can draw ethical boundaries. And some of this is simply about listening to Indigenous peoples. And they will have differing reactions to my work. Some have been incredibly positive and welcoming, and I've met lovely people through this. And others feel that this is a white history, and that is their right to... They're not wrong. I'm a white person using many of the traditional tools of a form of history that has at times been exploitative and oppressive to try and tell these stories and so people indigenous people are also entirely entitled to reject my approach that is their problem one thing that i did think was really important though was to try and share this history with indigenous communities and so i my i got my american publisher to agree to give a free copy of the book to Mm -hmm. any indigenous tribal library or community organization i know not everyone has tribes so it doesn't have to be a tribal library it can be a friendship center it can be uh, i've had emails from people who are simply um leaders of indigenous communities saying could you share a copy of the book with us and if someone wants to just send me you just send me an email and i will arrange for my american publisher which is knopf which are penguin they will send a copy for free to any indigenous community and i I felt that trying to share, I was going to do that myself, agreed, and my publisher said they they would do it, which was amazing of them. And so if people listening know of anyone who would like to take advantage of this, please tell them, and I would be delighted to share that work. Whether they like it when it gets there is their decision, Mm -hmm. but I wanted to make the fruits of my research as widely available as possible to Indigenous communities. Mm -hmm. For me, that reciprocity that sharing of knowledge was a small way to to try and practice ethical histories and i am I'm, I'm learning all the time i i've been privileged that indigenous friends and colleagues have read my work and have helped me with it i mentioned layla blackbird before she was incredible pointing out things that i would never even have noticed that could inadvertently be problematic or, or re- um, replicate a kind of eurocentric point of view i i can ramble about this for a long time but there isn't a good answer mm-hmm. i don't claim to represent any one history you know the, the book speaks to this wider global past mm-hmm. and i think it's really important for people in britain in europe in the academy to take responsibility for trying to change the way we think about our past in a way that is positive mm-hmm. and can be uh, an agent for good 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that sounds a bit grand, but in, in going a small way towards making people more aware and respectful of Indigenous communities and histories. Mm-hmm. That also applies for the global south. Yes. Exactly the same way. Absolutely. And that's, mm-hmm. I think, that if you get into a position like I'm in, then doing your best to lift up yeah. other scholars yeah. to give yeah. opportunities to um, Black, Indigenous and other people of colour, um, in my case, obviously, often Indigenous scholars to sometimes say no I'm not the right person for this you should speak instead to whoever it is or to direct work or grants or you know I think lifting up pointing towards other people is a big part of that absolutely exactly the way to break the linguistic barrier in some cases uh, when possible right and also academic endogamy ask outside the building (laughs) oh yes (laughs) Caroline thank you so much for all the days that we've been here. <laughs> Thank you for talking to me. It was uh, nice to have a conversation from a Mexican point of view because lots of people aren't, don't specialise in, in that here. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was just a great opportunity that I just couldn't miss. And I'm always saying that horizontal dialogues have to occur in all sorts of ways. And, and one of the Achilles foot, certainly in Mexican academia, is monolinguism. Mm. There are all about having global conversations, but can you please make it in Spanish? And of course, that's even more pronounced in the Anglophone, Global Northwest. So and few people speak um, another language, yeah, um, so let alone a, an Indigenous language. Whatever the excuse is still not breaking the barrier. So whenever it's in my means to have horizontal conversations, I'm going to do it time and time again. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This episode was uh, prepared, researched and produced uh, by me, Rocio Carvajal. For those interested in knowing more about uh, Dr. Caroline Dodd's uh, work, um, I have put together, remember, a list of resources for you that includes books, papers, videos and podcasts. Remember that you can always reach out to me on social media. I am on Twitter and on Instagram. And you can uh, also send me an email to hello at pasachipotle.com. Of course, there's a special blog post on my website and you can also go there. So if you enjoy the show, please, you can help me continue doing this uh, by recommending it to your friends. Subscribe. You can also support me by buying my ebooks, which are on my digital book stand. And there's links for that. Well, that's all for me today. I hope you are also taking the time to decompress and enjoy the summer or at least what's left of it. (laughs) Well, take care until the next time.